Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here on Stand to Reason, and so glad to uh, to have you join me today. I am enjoying a. Uh, let's see. I had to get the name of it because I. It's a complicated name here. Uh, a, a a new um, treat for me. It's called a Starbucks Vanilla Sweet Cream Cold Brew. Venti size, which is the twenty. The twenty ouncer is that right? Now yeah, that's what venti means. It's a twenty. So, so I just discovered these. Usually, I have my Starbucks in the morning. You know, I like the, the strong dark roast French. You know, knock it out. Usually, I try to stay away from the sugars and stuff. I have a little bulletproof coffee. Go on a kind of a fast for the rest of my sixteen hours. My little. Um, what do they call it? Uh, intermittent fasting, and then one or two in the afternoon, I can break fast. And I've been doing it lately with this wonderful vanilla sweet cream cold brew, which has very few calories in it, which is cool for me. Not that this has anything to do with the show, but I'm looking at it right here, and in a few moments, I'm going to take a sip from it when we take a break. But it's been a, a, a new little uh, simple pleasure, okay, just a simple pleasure. I'm not a big fan of these super high-calorie frappa-sappa-zappa-whatever thing that Starbucks makes and people walk out. They're, they're walking out with more of that kind of stuff than regular coffee. But uh, I did, this is regular coffee, just iced coffee with a little vanilla sweet cream in it, and uh, not bad. All right. Hey, I am pretty jazzed because got the latest news about Orange County reality, which for me will be in three days. For you, maximum of two days, because you'll be getting this on Wednesday. And uh, reality starts on Friday. We are right now at 2,045 people. We're just... 35 people from filling the main auditorium and going into overflow, okay? And anybody signs up, their last day, whatever, you're probably going to be in overflow unless you get on it right away and we don't get uh, we don't hit that 2100, which is our max for the main auditorium. Anyway, that's great news because uh, last year we were limited, 1,000 in one building, 1,000 in the other. It really annoyed a lot of people, including us. And no limitations now. We could put 2,000-plus in the main main building, and then we can have overflow for the rest of them. We're thrilled to have virtually sold out Orange County. Not only that, coming up Seattle, those of you who have been thinking about doing our Seattle, and that date for that is October 14th and 15th, so we're three weeks away from that event and a couple of days. We've got 960 of 1,100. I mean, that church is not very big. We're going to fill it up. We've got 140 more people that can sign up, and it's uh, three weeks out. And in Minneapolis, we have almost got 2,000 people signed up, and that's eight weeks out. Now, we're hoping to break 4,000 there. We had 3,300 last time, and it's really rocking and rolling right now. They just finished the early bird sign-up. In fact, for for Texas, Dallas, Texas, in February, we already got 48 people signed up for that. So we're really thrilled that we're back on board with our Reality Student Apologetics Conference geared for middle schoolers and high schoolers, uh, though anybody can come. But we're really gearing for that to help them deal with the challenge that they're facing right now with deconstruction and deconversion, and it's happening all around them. So we're losing a lot of people because those who leave the church, many of them are evangelistic for leaving the church, and they have whole enterprises 
websites, books devoted to encouraging people to leave Christ. And, um, and so we're answering those challenges in this year's series, six events around the country of reality apologetics. So uh, I'm really happy to see the response coming off of the dent that COVID put in it. Actually, it wasn't COVID. It was the government that put the dent in it, in my opinion. But in any event, that's really, really good news. So glad to see that. Um, I had, um, I think I mentioned this last week, that the week before last, I was at Baylor University. I spoke to law students there. There was a list of questions that were compiled for uh, for me to answer. We didn't get to them all. Uh, we got to a lot of them. It was a great time, as I recall, as I as I mentioned to you last time around. Uh, but there was one question that didn't get asked. There are a bunch of them. Maybe I'll get to some of these as we move on through the weeks or whatever. But um, that I thought was kind of curious. And the question was this, and maybe somebody has confronted you with this kind of challenge or a variation of it. And the question, as it's put here, is, is it suspicious that the risen Jesus only appeared to his followers? Isn't it suspicious that the risen Jesus only appeared to his followers? Okay, now this is akin to the person who objects to uh, the Gospels and relying on the Gospels as an account of Jesus' life because they were written by his followers. They were written by Christians. Yes. Well, they can't be trusted is the implication. You can't be trusted. They're going to distort. They have a bias. Okay, well, a bias can appear in different ways, can't it? Um, did, uh, I don't know, Kobe Bryant's mom think he was a great basketball player? Well, he was her son. Of course she's going to say that. Well, she will say that. She does have a bias, but the fact is he also was a great basketball player. The question isn't whether a person has a bias that is has a strong point of view. The question is, does the bias distort their understanding of the truth? And in Kobe Bryant's mom's case, she had a strong point of view, but there's no distortion there, obviously. And just because the disciples were the ones that wrote about Jesus, Jesus' followers who wrote about Jesus, um, do they have a stake? Of course they have a stake. But it's an odd kind of stake, isn't it? Because if they are not telling the truth, they are putting their lives at risk for the lie that they're telling. Now, there's a rule about lies, all right? And uh, any, you know, third grader can tell you this. You tell a lie that gets you something good. You don't tell a lie that gets you beaten, whipped, crucified upside down, or beheaded. This is not a good lie. What was I thinking, you know, kind of thing. Yet that is exactly what the apostles faced for fealty to Christ. There is no way that anyone is going to lie about something, know they're lying, and then put up with that kind of abuse 
and 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 cling to their confession when they know it's false. You want to find out about the details of the Holocaust? How do you find that out? You talk to people who actually lived through the Holocaust, that experienced the Holocaust. That's how you find out about it. Well, they have a bias. Well, they certainly have a point of view. But they're the ones who are in the best position to tell the truth about what happened, don't you think? And the same thing here. So now back to the question proper. Is it suspicious that the risen Christ, or Jesus, only appeared to the, his followers? Well, <clears throat> actually, he didn't. Um, there were two people we know of that were not his followers when he appeared to them. One was James. Now, we know about this from 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul records this, that he appeared to his disciples, and then he appeared to James. Now, James was Jesus' half-brother. I know there are a lot of people who think that Jesus had no brothers, that he was conceived by a miracle, and that was he was the only child Mary had. This is Roman Catholic dogma. But it's not what the Gospels say. Your mother and your brothers are looking for you. Athelphos, brothers. <laughs> it's the Greek word. Well, um, the uh, some want to translate that. Some want to translate that as cousins. It's not what it was. It's not the natural way of taking it. In any event, so here was James, now the brother of Christ, or strictly speaking, the half-brother of Jesus, who was part of the naysayers during his ministry, but after Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, he appeared to James. Guess what happened when Jesus appeared to James? It's the same thing that happened when Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus, a persecutor of the church. They both became believers in the risen Christ. Why did they become believers in the risen Christ? Because they saw the risen Christ. Incidentally, that was the same with the disciples, by the text's own admission. In other words, according to the documents themselves, the account itself, these guys did not believe at first. Okay, they weren't inclined to think that Jesus rose from the dead. You do not get that sense from the text. You have Thomas who flat out uh, denied the risen Christ, even though ten of his closest friends told him they saw him. He still wouldn't believe. So they're not inclined to believe that. Why did they all believe? Actually, it wasn't even enough that that Mary and the other women saw Jesus at the gravesite, because when they told Peter, for example, he had to run to the grave, and John, to see that the tomb was empty. And uh, Jesus, so, so his disciples didn't even believe right away, and some would not believe until Jesus appeared to them. So, I guess, on the one hand, Jesus didn't appear just to his disciples. He appeared to others, his unbelieving disciples, like Thomas and some others. Then he also appeared to James, who was not believing and then believed in virtue of the resurrection appearance, and then a persecutor of the 
church who is dragging Christian men and women um, to the courts and having them prosecuted and over, oversaw the execution of Stephen, and this would be Saul of Tarsus. And when he encountered the risen Christ, his life was transformed and became a believer. Now, one might say, well, the only ones who reported the risen Christ were believers. That's right. <laughs> and that's because those who weren't believers became believers because they saw the risen Christ. So there's a reason that everyone who reports on having seen the risen Christ was a believer in the risen Christ because they saw the risen Christ. I mean, the, <laughs> I, I don't know how else. You're, you're not going to have people reporting on the appearance of the risen Christ who didn't actually see the appearance of the risen Christ. I mean, it's kind of built into that. It's like a tautology, you know what I'm saying? Of course, they, the, the, the ones who reported on seeing the risen Christ had seen the risen Christ, which is why they were believers. But how, how does that in any way compromise their testimony? I don't know. It's it just it people raise these kinds of objections, and um, they they're so vacuous. It seems to me. And sometimes I I feel somewhat I, I my confidence in the truth of Christianity is reinforced by the uh, the, the 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 weakness of the challenges made against it, and ironically, weakness made by people who seem very very sure of themselves, like this statement. Um, John Loftus, for example, fairly well-known uh, atheist, writes books against Christianity. I remember reading his statement, and this guy's a smart guy. He said, well, you can't trust the Gospels. They were written by Christians. Just like that. That's it. It was just out of hand dismissing. Now, if he thinks you can't trust the Gospels because when looking at the Gospels, there are good reasons internally— in terms of the internal evidence, the maybe contradiction or whatever, and externally other details pertaining to the Gospels that that persuade us that they can't be reliable. Okay, well, that's a, certainly a legitimate way to approach this. But to say you can't rely on them because they were written by Christians? You know why I can't rely on the information in John Loftus' book uh, in against uh, theism and in favor of atheism? because John Loftus is an atheist. He's biased. He's writing a book against Christianity, but he's an atheist. Okay, now I'm just funning with you a little bit there, because some of you are going, huh? That doesn't make any sense. That's my point. You can't dismiss a book on the grounds that the person who wrote the book is convinced of the truth of his own ideas. <laughs> who, who, who writes any other kind of book that's a, meant to be kind of persuasive? Now, you can't believe the Gospels are written by Christians. Okay, well, then why, why, why can you believe an atheist book if it's written by an atheist? You know, that silly sword cuts both ways. 
but it's a dull sword. It ought not cut either way. But smart people think it's significant, and that's what really surprises me sometimes. Really? That's your that's your complaint? That's your that's your dismissal? Can't you do better than that? Anyway. So listen, I got one other thing here in this first segment. Uh, last week I uh, had a call about <clears throat> whether uh and this was one of our callers, our open mic callers, all right. Um which by the way, if you want to call in any time and leave your question out loud as it were, you can just Phone in to 857-DIAL-STR or 857-342-5787 and leave a recorded question. And we have been playing those, you know, as time goes on, and we plug them into our show. And uh, uh, so that's that's pretty cool. It wasn't my idea. I wish it was. Well, somebody else got credit for that. I think it was Amos and Derek or Kyle didn't think of that, did he? No. <laughs> no. Kyle's going, what? What am I, chopped liver? Okay, so um, last week I fielded a call about someone wondering whether we could buy an AK-47 and defend ourselves from persecution kind of thing. Brought, I mean, that was a quick summary of it. But, um, and I I said, well, uh, I'm not sure. It, it, defend, it depends. We can always defend ourselves in general, but can we use a weapon to protect ourselves from being uh, martyred? Well, that might be a different category. Anyway, so Holly Bender, one of our listeners, and have we heard from Holly before? The name's really familiar to me. Maybe maybe, maybe Holly and I are really good friends, but I just, you know, have an old-timer's moment here. And But in any event, thank you, Holly, for your note. I'll read to you what she sent us because it was an interesting reflection uh, on this question. And she says, I was just listening to Greg's answer of the person who, uh, the person's question regarding is it okay to fight back when persecuted? I had mentioned that even in the New Testament, we have people fleeing persecution, which is what Jesus recommended, actually. We see that. But um, she goes on, he called it the AK-47 question. Greg said to email Amy, if we, blah, 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 if we had an example from history of Christians fighting back when persecuted. So uh, here it is. <laughs> My immediate thought was the Revolutionary War. I've been reading Eric Metaxas's book, If You Can Keep It, which was the comment that after the Constitutional Convention, uh, Benjamin Franklin made when a person said they came out and they said, what kind of government did you establish? He said, a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it, which is in question now, I guess. Anyway, that's why Eric wrote this book. But he's talking about the revolution. And um, and he also is talking about, as she mentions, the Christian reawakening by God using George Whitefield, or Whitfield rather, in the 30 years prior to the war. And uh, America was decidedly newly revived Christian nation at the time of the Revolution versus the French Revolution, where the resistance purposely distanced themselves from God of religion. So now we've got a period of time with the American Revolution, by contrast to the French Revolution, is is happening, or at least it's before them as an option, with a newly revived Christianity in the country with the first great awakening, George Whitfield being part of that. Okay, French Revolution says, no, we don't want God in this. Okay, pastors in America at the time, the American Revolution, 
wrestled over fighting back against the unjust laws of King George and the troubles they experienced at the hands of the Crown's enforcers, that would be tax collectors and soldiers. So, um, as she comments, it would be interesting to read their sermons in light of this question, because ultimately many decided it was biblically sound to stand up to unjustness or injustice to the point of war. That would be lethal resistance. The problem in Germany was that the people stood up too late. Some of you might think of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for example, and others who did stand up um, and ended up in Dachau, or in the case of Bonhoeffer, was executed. Um, yet the American church has gotten out of politics, and in that vacuum, evil has taken up residence and is now in control of almost all areas of life. Great observation. How we fight against evil is different for everyone, she closes here, but that we fight evil, I think, is clear. Don't wait till they come for you to decide if you will use an AK-47. There are so many ways to fight back against persecution now, with our money, with our time, get on a school board, run for local office, with our actions, with our words, etc. So why sit on our hands and try to think, should we fight at a later date? And it's reminiscent of the, the quotation that many of you are familiar with. And it's from Martin Niemöller, who was a colleague of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, I'll just paraphrase. Martin Niemöller, who was a Lutheran pastor, resisted Hitler, was sent to Dachau for the duration of the war, survived, amazingly. He was the one who said, well, they came for the Jews, and I wasn't a Jew, so I didn't do anything. They came for the gypsies, and I wasn't a gypsy, so they didn't do it. They came for the Marxists, and I wasn't a Marxist, so I didn't do anything, and etc., etc. And then they came for me, and when they came for me, there was no one left to resist. Well, that's Martin Niemöller. I, 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 I'm paraphrasing the citation, but you recall it. And this is what Holly Bender is, is, is exhorting us regarding, you know, let's act appropriately and in ways that are not morally um, unclear while we can before um, things get to the point where the resistance that might be offered um, might be questionable, at least in some people's mind. Good point. All right, let's take a break, and we'll get to your calls when I return here on Stand to Reason. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. 
Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking, and we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic, and subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Still enjoying my uh, vanilla sweet cream cold brew, that tea. I mean, what's the sense of having like a tall or a grande of that? It's a half ice anyway. It's like two sips and you're done with. And what is up with, I, I don't even get this with Starbucks. Every t- I've been drinking Starbucks for years and years and years and years. And every time I go in there, I got to concentrate to figure out which size is which. A small is a tall and a medium is a grande. And the biggest one is a venti. What, you know, you got to speak Spanish to even order. And they're from Seattle, not Southern California, which, by the way, they're closing stores in Seattle, from what I understand, because of the crime problem. They're closing stores because the city of Seattle would not protect their stores. Too much crime. Crazy. Anyway. Uh, but the, the, these are the folks. Now, this is... I heard this from a couple of sources. I think it's reliable. But they had a no-gun policy in Starbucks. And meaning, if you had a concealed carry, you could not buy coffee in their store. You could not walk in with a concealed weapon. That was their policy. And as I heard it, this applied even to policemen. Now, this is crazy, and I'll tell you why it's crazy. If it's not obviously crazy to anybody, let me tell you why it's crazy. What is the safest store in town in terms of robberies? The donut shop. You never rob a donut shop. Why? Because you never know when the cops are going to pull up and buy a donut. Squad, maybe this has changed in terms of the culture of cops, but, you know, in the past, it's like cops are always stopping at donut shops. So you never rob a donut shop. So why would you have a donut shop, a fancy donut shop, that says no cops allowed? you got guns, you can't come in. And now what's happening? This is poetic justice. Now they're being robbed silly, and they got to close stores, at least in Seattle. And they're complaining. 
Oh, man, maybe they should say armed people on the premises all the time. That kind of makes me think of the silliest. That's the nicest way I can think of saying it. I really want to say stupid sign ever conceived of, and it's the sign on a schoolyard that says no gun zone. Do you think that anybody who has a weapon and is, has an ill intent regarding that weapon and the people in the school is going to be stopped by that sign? It's actually even worse. The sign's an invitation. Can you imagine driving into your local community? It says, Thousand Oaks, population 10,467, no lock zone in our city. No houses or businesses have any locks on them. I think that would be kind of an invitation. Anyway, separate issue. All right, let's go to Tennessee and Mr. Garrett. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, Greg. How you doing? Doing good. I've got my uh, vanilla sweet cream cold brew. Venti. Yeah. Uh, no, I just want to say first off um, about Starbucks cups. I definitely agree with that. Um, had to think about that a lot. <laughs> about, <laughs> with the about sizes, with the sizes of the cups. And your other oh, oh yeah, so you have the same problem. Just speak English, yeah. you know, but it's a, yeah. it's just snob appeal, I guess. Exactly. Um, Small, and then medium, large. Say, That's what we need. Small, medium, large. To make it simple. Yeah. Common sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just want to say I um, appreciate your your ministry, your whole team, Amy, Tim, and every member. Um, I've been listening to you guys for a year now, but oh. I basically listen to all of your podcasts on Spotify. So wow. I'm wow. Fully caught I... up. Um, well, this is really satisfying to hear this. There are a number of people who said, I just discovered you within the last 12 months or 18 or whatever, but went back 20 years and listened to all that I could. And it's <laughs> very gratifying to me. Thank you. I appreciate yeah, that. I, um, yeah, of course. I went to, I went to Biola university um, and I graduated from there. But I feel like I've learned so much more even since then from your ministry and, and plenty of other ministries. Oh, so I'm very thankful. Well, that's for that. sweet. I took a master's degree over at Talbot, yeah. associated with Talbot. And uh, we like those people over there, obviously. We've been close to them for many years. But it's uh, I'll, I'll have to let uh, uh, Corey know that uh, <laughs> more out of our show than out of. No, I won't do that. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So, what's on your mind? Um, yeah, so. Uh, I was telling Amy, um, I've always understood the opposed contradiction between James and Paul about works and salvation and how that works. I've right. always understood, uh, um, I'm, I'm assuming I've, I've probably heard you talk about it, um, how I, I don't see that as a contra- contradiction because of you know all I've heard and just reading it. Um, but I, I recently heard, um, I think it was on Instagram, it was someone I follow, and um, he's a, a, a Christian author and teacher, and he, he just made the, a quick comment about how, like, oh, you know, it is a contradiction, but James is the first epistle, and, you know, he, he didn't know. Like, Paul didn't correct him. And so I, you know, like a good Christian, I looked in my study Bible, my ESV, and, you know, saw that James was the first epistle, um, but just kind of that, like, wasn't a an appealing reasoning. He kind of just was like, okay, right. With the contradiction. He just threw it out there. Right. Yeah. Um, and I just, 
like if that was in the book of acts you know it's like part of the history of the church like that's one thing but it's like it's an inspired epistle and it's james teaching a church and so i felt like that was i don't think he thought of what that like the end result of that was okay yeah I let's, to hear your thoughts i have thank you for the question garrett and i yeah. do have a lot of thoughts about this and i don't know who this individual is so you don't have to tell me but he's somebody who's in play here, apparently, and I am a little bit surprised. First, well, there's a bunch of things that surprise me about this. First, his whole assessment uh, presumes that there is a contradiction between James and Paul. Given the contradiction, since James came first, James got justification correct and Paul got it wrong. Is that mm. your sense? Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. I. I think. Well, he. He. He clearly says that Paul's right. He just makes the the statement that James was pre um, the Jerusalem Council, and so he hadn't heard about Paul's message to the Gentiles, and so he was still. He was like a one of the the Jewish Christians who wanted Christians to be Jews, kind of thing. Okay. So, but this does include that it does entail the notion that Paul and James are at odds on their view of justification. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to I want to repair that mistaken thinking here in a moment. And uh but I'm sympathetic to the mistake because of the way words are often used in this case the word justification, okay? But I want to make an observation about something. Um, I'm con- uh, f- uh, first of all, I'm convinced that um, uh, well, two observations. One of them is that Paul in the book of Galatians, let's just say Galatians came after James. They're pretty tight, depends who's doing the numbers, but n- yeah. uh, nevertheless, let's say it came after James. Galatians also came before the Jerusalem Council. And I'll tell you why this is the case. And I remember having a course on this at Biola, and the professor there had one opinion, and I offered this rationale, and he said, I never thought of that, I just changed my view, to his credit. But it's because the rationale is compelling. And that is, when Paul is dealing with the Galatian problem in the book of Galatians, which is a problem that was officially dealt with with the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. What reference does Paul make in Galatians to the Jerusalem Council? Um, I, I don't know off the top of my head. <laughs> okay, well, the answer is no reference to it. Oh, there you go. Why didn't he make any reference to it? They worked this whole thing out. They all came yeah. to an agreement. They wrote a letter that was supposed to be dispersed all through the Galatian region. Why didn't Paul mention it? Because it hadn't happened yet. Mm-hmm. So Paul's writing in Galatians, which has a very strong message about justification by faith, by the way, um, was also written, at least arguably, and that line of thinking that I've offered I think is really compelling, at least arguably it was written before, also before the Jerusalem Council. Okay. Now, one other point. In the book of Galatians, which I think pretty much everybody acknowledges was Paul's first letter. 
in the book of Galatians, Paul talks about having been instructed by Jesus in Arabia, and then taking his message to the pillars of the faith, that would be Peter, James, and John, in Jerusalem, to check his message out with them, if perchance he might have been running uh, I don't know how he puts it, like running running foolishly or running it with error, making a mistake about this. He checks yeah. it out. They gave him the right hand of fellowship, and it is on the basis of that affirmation of his gospel that he is then able to go to Paul, to Peter, and rebuke him for his hypocrisy in connecting inappropriately with the Judaizers. Okay, so the point I'm making is you do not have James over here writing something prior to the Jerusalem Council, Paul after the Jerusalem Council, who is now offering something that James is unaware of, because Paul also wrote before the Jerusalem Council, and in that piece, Galatians, he says he already talked with Peter, James, and John regarding the legitimacy of his approach, and they gave him the right hand of fellowship. So Paul and James are on the same page here. All right? Okay. Okay, so that's so far. Now you could say, one could say, maybe your your theological friend, well then, why the contra- apparent contradiction? Why the contradiction is probably what he would say. Okay, so I'm just laying this first step as a foundation. They knew each other. They the, the James a, approved of Paul's gospel, and this is all discussed in Galatians, which is a very early book too. All right, early on. All right. So then we come to James itself. Now um, it's very interesting, and I have it right here in front of me. I've written a whole piece on this, but I'll give you the the basic layout. And you might have heard this before, but I know people haven't, and they get hung up on James. Okay, I'm going to start in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone, and and I'm going to do my own inflection here, and maybe a little bit of paraphrase, because I think this captures the sense of it. What use of it is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? In other words, can that kind of faith save him? In other words, the kind of faith, quote-unquote, that is just words and no action. All right? So I'm, 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 I'm reading the words, but this is, I'm saying what they, what, what, this is the, the, um, the sense of James's argument. Can that, and I know because of what follows, if a brother or sister is without clothing in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, be fed, and yet you don't give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? His words. Even so, faith, and here I think he means faith in quotations, so-called mm-hmm. faith, if it has no works, is dead. Okay, so this isn't real faith. This is dead faith. It's a claim of faith. But someone may well say, well, I have, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, here's what's really significant. For James, the issue so far is always faith, and whether faith is real and genuine or not. And that's why he says here, to kind of cap off what he's come so far, show me your so-called faith without your works, and I will show you my real faith 
by my behavior, by my works. Notice that the point is faith. It's still all faith. It's the comparison of false faith with genuine faith. Okay? And that's really important in this assessment in James chapter 2. Um, and so, verse 19, you believe God is one, you do well, the demons also believe and shudder. In other words, just raw belief isn't going to help you. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? And then he gives some examples. And this is really important. Was not, a- and also it introduces a new word. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? All right, now we get to pause there because this is where what appears to be the heart of the contradiction. James says, clear as day, that Abraham was justified by works. In Romans chapter 4, Paul says, Abraham was not justified by works. For what does it say? He believed God, and that was reckoned to him as righteousness. Okay, so now we got the heart of the apparent contradiction. All right. Now, I want to make an observation that is absolutely central to uh, untying this Gordian knot. And it's not a Gordian knot. It's just a simple overhand knot. Once you get it, it's easy. Like most words in any language, they have a given word has more than one meaning. They are not univocal, univocal, one meaning. They're equivocal. They have multiple meanings. And this is true of almost every single word, and it is also true of the word justification. Now, if I were to say to you, Garrett, um, um, given some behavior, something that you chose to do, and I said, justify your actions, Garrett, justify your actions, what would I be asking you to do? How would you put uh, it? To explain why I did something? Yes, to explain why and give the reasons why, or to demonstrate mm-hmm. why your your actions were appropriate. Okay? So one sense of justification, the one we're most familiar with, is a demonstration of something else. It's a demonstration of, for example, the legitimacy of the actions you took. Okay? When Paul uses the word justification, he's using it in a different fashion. He's using it in a theological sense. When Paul means justification, he means imputed righteousness. Okay? He means when God justifies us, he places—it's a um, legal term. He puts money in our account. I'm sorry, it's a banking term. He puts money in our account. All right? So when, when we are justified in the sense that Paul is talking about— then God is giving us something we don't deserve. All right? He is giving us goodness that we don't have, but Christ earned for us. And this is why he says in Romans 4, for him who works, then uh, what is what is given to him is considered as what is due. A person works for something, the wage is due. But for him who does not work, but believes in a God who justifies the ungodly, to him it is reckoned as righteousness. So he's contrasting somebody who works and gets what he earns, workspace righteousness, and people who don't work but trust God to give them 
the righteousness and the giving of the righteousness Paul calls justified. Okay, so all I'm doing right now is I'm I'm showing there are two different ways the word justify can be used. One, Paul sense to declare to be justified, to be to declared to be righteous. Okay, and the other one, which you we were just talking about, is to demonstrate or show to be so. Justify yourself. Okay. Those, those are the two senses that are in play in these two different passages. What Paul is talking about is imputed righteousness. What James is talking about is evidence of the imputed righteousness lived out in behaviors. That kind of justification. Now, are you with me so far? Yeah. Okay. Now, I'm going to prove to you that I'm not just making this up. Okay, because who does Paul use as a um, exemplar or example or uh, uh, of justification in the sense that he's talking about? Who does he go back to? Uh, Abraham. Abraham. Okay, look, Abraham was justified by faith. Here it is. And then who does James go back to to clarify his meaning of justification? Abraham. Abraham. Same guy. Wait a minute. That just confirms that this is a contradiction, not until you read the fine print. Because here it is, verse 21 in James chapter 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when, when what? When he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar. Okay, wait a minute, let me just think about this. Paul says Abraham was justified. He believed God, it was reckoned to him as just, just, when was that? Well, that was Genesis, uh, let's see, 15. Genesis 15. Did Abraham have any kids at that time? Garrett? No, no. No, he didn't. And this is why he was questioning God. Look at Eliezer of Damascus as the head of my household. So Mm -hmm. maybe all of what you're promising me goes to him. And then God says, no, the one who will be the heir, heir of these promises is one who will come forth from your own loins. And then it says, he believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. So the reckoning as righteous happened when Abraham was childless in Genesis 15. It is not until Genesis 20, 22, what is that? 20, I, I've got it somewhere in my notes. I think it's 20 years later. When James identifies a behavior, offering Isaac on the altar, that he says justifies Abraham. Wait a minute. Is Abraham justified twice? Is he reckoned righteous in Genesis 15 and then reckoned righteous again in Genesis 22? No, they're using the words in a different sense. He is reckoned righteous in Genesis 15, according to Paul's understanding of righteousness, it is credited to his account, and then he is proved to be so by his conduct 20 years later when he offers up Isaac on the altar in Genesis 22. There is no contradiction. They fit together. You see that? Yeah. Okay, now let me just read from James with that explanation in mind. Okay, so I'm going to go back to verse 21 in James. 
was not Abraham our father justified by works? In other words, shown to be righteous by his works? That's the definition we're working with here. When he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar, you see, verse 22, you see that faith was working with his works. What faith? The faith from 20 years before. And as a result of the works, the faith was perfected. Okay? And the scripture was fulfilled, <laughs> which says, and Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15. So he's tying these two together. One is the, even James is, one is the act of justification, and the other, years later, a visible, you see, a visible outworking of the justification. There is perfect harmony between Paul and James. There's not a hint of contradiction in this passage. They are talking about two entirely different things. Paul is talking about salvation, to use our terminology now, and James is talking about the evidence of the salvation in the behaviors, obedient behaviors, of those who are already justified. And that's why he gives the example of Abraham, and he also gives an example of Rahab, you know. So um, that's the discussion that's going on here. There's no conflict. And when you think about Paul clarifying with uh, James and John and Peter, you know, Galatians 1, yeah, we got the same gospel, they all get it. There is, there is nothing to explain here that is kind of something's out of kilter. Oh, maybe it's because one came before the other, and the other didn't understand what came later, and Paul clarified, or whatever. No, 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 no. There's no need to solve a problem that we don't have once you understand how the texts fit together. Yeah. Make sense? Yeah, it does, definitely. Okay, buddy, I'm glad we get a chance to talk a little bit about this, because I think there's a lot of folks that are a bit confused about this one. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you for answering this and just for everything you do. Oh, you're so welcome, Garrett. i got to run to uh, uh, Cal- somewhere in California for my final call with the hour, but thanks for calling back. All right. Okay, Bye. buddy. Bye. All right, let's go to Anselm. Is that like St. Anselm? Uh, yeah. We had this conversation once before, didn't we? Yeah, we yeah, did. Okay. Um, about a month ago, I think. So. Okay, okay. Oh. All right, well, Anselm, thank you for calling back. It's good to have you back on board. For sure. What's on your mind? Um, my question is probably an interesting one, maybe. Um, is uh, Basically, is it appropriate to pay, pray to the other persons of God? So, like, you know, you see lots of examples in the Bible of um, praying to the Father, right? Right. Um, and in uh, as an example in John, or as a contrary example, maybe, in John fourteen fourteen, Jesus is saying, whatever you ask me, I'll do it yeah. for you. Or well, like does he 14. say, ask in my name? Is that how he puts it? Or does he? I know I think so, yeah. there are different ways that that promise is characterized. Does he say "ask me" or "ask in my name"? Uh, I have it pulled up, so I can just look at. In John, there's John 15, also John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. So it says, "Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do." Yeah. So that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Sure. If you okay. ask me anything in my name, I'll yeah. do it. 
So it's like really the 14th if you ask me anything. Uh-huh. Um, and my guess is no, but uh, I was just curious. Your you guess is that. no, that it's not inappropriate to pray? Or to... no, it's, it's basically not appropriate, at least maybe confused, because every example I see is to the Father, so yeah. maybe I'm interpreting it wrong. Well, the, the, I think the standard pattern um, is to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. Right. Now, just for clarification, the name of Jesus does not mean saying in the name of Jesus. And in fact, I sometimes will purposely avoid that language at the end of my prayer, because I think what the phrase in the name of Jesus has come to mean is it's a signal to everybody else that the prayer is over, and now they can say amen, all right? To pray in the name of Jesus has nothing to do with saying in the name of Jesus, because there are lots of prayers in the New Testament by Christian disciples, and none of them end in the name of Jesus, amen. Um, The idea of praying in the name of Jesus means that we are going to the Father uh, uh, as— I'm trying to think of the best way to characterize it, uh, in, in the authority and access that Jesus gives us before the Father, all right? So it's kind of like in the—I don't know if you remember this when I was a kid, you know, they'd have, like, cartoons. They'd say, stop in the name of the law. You know, somebody stand up, stop in the name of the law, you know, kind of thing. Well, what, in other words, the policeman who says that is telling the person to stop on the basis of the authority of the law he represents, not on the basis of his authority as a citizen putting his hands up, his hand up to stop. So uh, in the same way, when we pray to the Father in Jesus' name, we are going to the Father in virtue of the fact that that the Son has given us access. That's the idea, and that should be our attitude. Now, sometimes we might say it that way, but you don't need to say it that way to do it that way, you know? Uh, Sometimes I'll say, Lord, by the authority of your Son, I'm asking such and so, so I put it in different words. Um, Now, with, with that in mind, though, the formula characteristically is to the Father. Jesus says, pray this way, our Father, okay? And then in these passages in the Upper Room Discourse in John 14 and in 15, there's a reference. He's saying, ask in my name. Ask of who? Ask of the Father. Now, I have some friends that have written a book, though, about Jesus in the New Testament, and it's not released yet, uh, but it's, I got a chapter from them because they had let me know that this is one of the things they dealt with. And, uh, and so I said, hey, people ask me this question, whether it's okay to pray to Jesus or not. And then in their chapter that they sent me, I got a file of it. I don't have access to it at this moment. It's in the other room on my computer. But this is where they talk about this. And I have read the chapter and was convinced by what they said there, that there's nothing at all wrong with appealing to Jesus or, uh, or to the Holy Spirit, for that matter. And um, then they give their reasons why. What I can't do right now <laughs> is articulate the particular reasons that they gave. So here's what I want to say. My, my, I'll, I'll kind of bring it all together. Just got 60 seconds left. And that is uh, the standard pattern in the New Testament 
is that we pray to the Father in Jesus' name, and that is the way I usually pray. I do find a liability with that, though, and that is I feel much more intimacy with the Father than I do with the Son. All of my appeals, pouring my heart out, making requests, everything is to the Father. And I, I kind of feel, in a certain sense, that Jesus has been left on the sidelines a little bit in terms of my intimacy with him, because I'm always talking to the Father. So I've been on occasion trying to talk to Jesus. Um, and for example, the Jesus prayer, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is a prayer that was prayed, that was a request made by people of Jesus in Jesus' time. Have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me. And there are times when I will pray that to Jesus. And I think it's a very powerful uh, prayer. And I think it's in- completely legitimate. And as far as the Holy Spirit, I don't know if there's any examples of praying to the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is part of the Godhead. So I think that that there'd be an, a propriety to doing that as well. Maybe next week I'll, I'll talk about the details that I read in the uh, in the chapter that will be helpful. But uh, So pray to the Father, but it's okay to pray to the Son and Spirit if you want to do that too. It's just not the standard. There you go. Okay, Anselm. Until next time, thank you for that call. And that's it, friends, for us this hour. Greg Kokel here for Stand a Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.